0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. Over the last three weeks, I dedicated my show to the Academy Awards, and... Now it's back to movies, although I've got a lot of movies to catch up on. There's only one film that I'm going to be reviewing for you this week that actually came out on Friday, April 8th, 2022, and that film is the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you. It is Sonic the Hedgehog, which is in theaters right now. It was distributed by Paramount, but I think it's only in theaters. I don't think you can watch it on Paramount Plus yet. But chances are that you probably will in the next couple of months. As a matter of fact, the way movies go right now, if a movie's out in theaters, it's, a, it's only about two or three months before it, it makes an appearance on DVD, Blu-ray, or for, and 4K. Not or. And. <laughs> because all the major Hollywood films uh, come out on, on 4K that are brand new these days. But anyway... Getting back to the subject at hand, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 takes off pretty much where the original one left off in the sense that Dr. Robotnik had been defeated in the previous movie, but he's down, but not out. But Dr. Robotnik, who is reprised here by Jim Carrey, is exiled to another dimension where there are apparently a lot of mushrooms. And he wants to, and this is a quote from the movie, get off this piece of shiitake island, which is uh, pretty pretty funny. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good dad joke <laughs> at this point. And Jim Carrey is not only a dad, he's also a granddad at this point, despite the fact that he looks really good uh, for a granddad. But he is in this other dimension plotting revenge on Sonic the Hedgehog. And he ultimately creates a device that creates another generation, uh, excuse me, not another generation, another dimension, where he recruits a, another furry friend who is an Echidna. An, 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 an excuse me. The species of this other uh, furry creature is an Echidna. I don't know if that's a real creature or it's a, if a, it's a mythical creature, but it is a red dreadlocked furry creature, who, and this one goes by the name of Knuckles, and in this movie he is voiced by none other than Idris Elba, and even though Idris Elba makes a cool um, voice, Idris Elba has a cool voice, even when he does an American accent it's cool, but when he does his normal British accent that's also very cool. However, having said that, I would have thought that Idris Elba would have stayed away from playing anybody who's furry, especially after having played McCavity in the train wreck of a movie that's called Cats. But here, he's actually pretty good as the voice of Knuckles. But Dr. Robotnik and Knuckles unite not only to bring down Sonic the Hedgehog, but also to get a stone, or a diamond actually, that will grant... Dr. Robotnik, pretty much all the power in the world. Of course, Dr. Robotnik's genius is an asset, but getting this diamond will allow him to basically have all the power to take over the world. And Sonic the Hedgehog is reprised in this movie by comedian Ben Schwartz, and he is still living happily with his adopted uh, human father, Who is a small town sheriff by the name of Tom Wachowski, who's played by James Marsden, and his lovely wife Maddie, who's played by Tika Sumpter. The subplot of these two is that they go to Hawaii to for the um, excuse me throat issues there for the wedding of uh, Maddie's precocious sister Rachel, who does not like Tom, and she's played by Natasha Rothwell. And she's being married to an extremely good-looking guy by the name of Randall, who's played in this movie by Shamar Moore. And Shamar Moore is, of course, unquestionably good-looking, but his acting skills in this film are not particularly good. Um, and I, I would give some examples of how his acting or maybe his comedy skills aren't particularly good. But I, and this is a guy who's had a lot of experience acting, too. He's been on the CBS show Criminal Minds for 15 years, and even in Tyler Perry's debut Medea movie, which was actually better than some of his other Medea movies, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, he was good in that movie too. But in this film, he's just really bad. And as I said, I would give you some examples of how he's bad and why he's bad, but if I do... That would give away certain subplots of the film. But anyway, so Maddie and Tom go to Hawaii, not by plane actually, but by taking one of Sonic the Hedgehog's rings and throwing it to the floor and magically getting their destination right there within seconds which is my god a great way to travel if i had those magic rings i would never go to the airport but i would also probably never tell my friends about these rings because let them suffer at the airport for god's sake so in this um story of sonic the hedgehog 2 uh sonic ultimately finds that knuckles is out to get him and whereas sonic the hedgehog's strength is his speed Knuckles' strength is not only his speed, which is not quite as good as Sonic the Hedgehog's, but still better than, for example, mine, but his strength is literally the strengths of his fists. But Sonic the Hedgehog in this movie has an ally, and those of you who are familiar with the game, as I am, remember the character of Tails. And in this movie, Tails is voiced by... Colleen O'Shaughnessy, even though, uh, Tails, whose full name is actually Miles Prower for some reason, that's never explained very well, even though Tails is a boy. And when I say a boy, I mean he is a child, but he's a fox-like creature who has two tails that allow him to fly. So, This movie is not as good as the original Sonic the Hedgehog. I thought the original Sonic the Hedgehog was not only very funny and had amazing special effects, not to mention having Jim Carrey as an asset, but it's also the best movie based on a video game so far. Uncharted starring Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg comes pretty close, but the original Sonic the Hedgehog definitely takes the cake. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is not as good as the original Sonic the Hedgehog or, for that matter, Uncharted. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But, to its credit, it is better than every other movie based on a video game. And I think the main reason that it's better is because of the same reason that the original Sonic the Hedgehog the movie is the best. Because it's true to the characters. It has amazing CGI. It has... The CGI characters have actual personalities and the the story is good and that's really what it takes to make a great movie with CGI characters mind you not just a great video game movie. Finally Hollywood has realized this but the reason that Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is not as good as the original is because it takes a while for the movie to get into what Dr. Robotnik is trying to do with Knuckles at his side. It's one thing to take down Sonic the Hedgehog, but it's another thing to actually get what they were striving to get, which is this diamond that grants its its keeper all, virtually all the known powers in the world. And it does suffer from one of those plot complexes where once a villain gets all the powers in the world and is able to take over the world, what does he want to do with the world? And the way that Dr. Robotnik uses his powers in this film works to a certain extent, but again, I found myself asking myself, if you have all the powers in the world, why would you just do this? And why would you go to this small town to exercise these powers? I don't exactly know, but this is the way the movie is going. And also, the movie kind of panders to kids sometimes. One such example is when Sonic and Tails are on their way independently to stop Dr. Robotnik and Knuckles from getting this diamond, and they stop in this tavern where they think they're going to get into a bar fight, but the bar patrons actually challenge them to a dance-off like it's West Side Story. And the dance-off, it's not even a subplot. It's just something that's added into these kinds of movies. It was added into the movie uh, Ferdinand, which was the fully animated film with John Cena as the voice of the titular character. And it didn't really need to be. I don't think dance-offs are very funny. I don't think that there are kids of any age who request dance-offs in films, and that's one of the parts uh, of several that really slowed down the plot of the movie. But I did like the special effects, I liked the three actors who did the voices of the animated characters in here, I I think Jim Carrey really uh, hammed it up here in a good way, and I actually heard from interviews that Jim Carrey's done on shows like Access Hollywood and Extra that he did this movie, and the last Sonic the Hedgehog movie because he and his grandson connect by playing Sonic the Hedgehog and his grandson actually beats him at Sonic the Hedgehog every time. And I actually thought that was very sweet. Unfortunately, Jim Carrey says that he's going to be retiring from acting soon, which is not so sweet, but I guess everybody has to retire at one point or another. And Jim Carrey has enough of a repertoire in his... 30-plus years of acting to live off of his residuals. And, you know, who could blame him? It takes a really long time to make a movie. And if one of the last movies you do is one that you do for your family, that's really noble, and I really appreciate that. But getting back to the movie Sonic the Hedgehog, what worked and what didn't, I liked the action. I liked the uh, climax. I also liked the extra scene at the end where they hint at a third movie as well. And it and the third movie looks promising, but I didn't really care for the uh pacing of the film. I didn't really particularly like the human actors. I did like James Marsden, Tika Sumter, and Jim Carrey. I think they did a good job, but just about every other human actor wasn't up to par, especially Shamar Moore, who really just uh disappointed me there's also another um man in the movie an older man whose name is commander walters who's played here by tom butler who is an older actor so you would think he would be more experienced in acting but unfortunately his scenes are kind of stiff as well so it's almost like every other human actor in this film just doesn't really uh bring their a game The exceptions are, of course, James Marsden, Tika Sumpter, and Jim Carrey. They do well with what they're given. And I think actually Tika Sumpter is better in this film than she was in the last one. She's more than just a pretty wife. She actually steps up a a little bit more. But the humor in the film, I think, worked for what it was. The action sequences were really good, Uh, but... Again, the pacing of the film sometimes, some of the added scenes like the dance-off wasn't necessary and it was a little long and the pacing was a bit sluggish at times, which leads me to give Sonic the Hedgehog 2 my rating of a checkout. I do think it is somewhat of a worthy follow-up to the original Sonic the Hedgehog. I don't think it's nearly as good, but I do think it's serviceable. I think kids might like most of it. I don't think they'll particularly enjoy the dance-off, and they won't care for most of the human characters. But I think just about... Everything else in this movie works. I just hope that the third movie steps it up in terms of not only the plot and the story, which are the strengths of the two Sonic the Hedgehog films, but also the acting of the humans that are involved who aren't the lead humans in this movie. But Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is an okay follow-up, but it could have been better. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Lost City. This is a film that came out in theaters on March 25th, 2022. So it's been out for a little while, but I did not get the chance to review it for you a couple of weeks ago because that was my special Oscar show. And I'm going to take the opportunity to review it for you right now. So, the movie is about a reclusive romance novelist whose name is Loretta Sage, and she's played by Sandra Bullock. And she is on a book tour with her cover model, and her cover model's name is um, Alan Caperson, whose uh, stage name is actually Dash McMahon. He's obviously based off of Fabio, because he has the long hair and everything to boot, and he just goes to conventions because he's going to have middle-aged women screaming at him. And it helps that this man is played by Channing Tatum. So anyway, Loretta and Dash, or Alan, uh, team up uh, on a book tour first, but get, then get swept up in a kidnapping attempt that lands them both in a cutthroat jungle adventure. So, Loretta Sage is one of these um, writers. Actually, Loretta Sage is her pen name. Uh, Her real name is actually Angela. And she is a very smart woman, and she incorporates um, true archaeological facts into her romance novels. But that, that, of course, is, I think, for her own credibility. The people who read a lot of these romance novels really don't care about those kinds of plot details, but she adds them in any way for added uh, credibility. So anyway, they are on a book tour, and I don't really want to um, stereotype people who read romance novels because romance novels have actually come a long way from the Harlequin romances that you'd find um, at the thrift store or at um, retirement homes. Uh, They've actually kind of evolved ever since Fifty Shades of Grey, but there are still a lot out there that are formulaic, and I won't fault people who like to read them. It's actually good that people are reading something, let alone uh, Harlequin romance novels. But anyway, after a disastrous start to this uh, book tour, Loretta is met by an eccentric billionaire whose name is Abigail Fairfax. And Abigail Fairfax is played by Daniel Radcliffe. And yes, his name in the movie is Abigail. I didn't know that could be um, a male name. I kind of doubt that it is, but that's how it goes. But anyway, Fairfax realizes that Loretta has based her books on actual historical research she did with her deceased archaeological husband And he has discovered a lost city on a remote Atlantic island and is convinced that this is the location of the uh, Crown of Fire, which is a priceless treasure. And when Loretta declines to help decipher an ancient map that Fairfax has of the treasure, he, um, fearing the site that will will be destroyed by an active volcano, kidnaps Loretta and takes her to the island. And eventually... Um, the character Dash, Channing Tatum's character, sees Loretta gets kidnapped and goes after her. And he also recruits a um, CIA operative whose name is Jack Trainer, who's played in this movie in a surprisingly small part by Brad Pitt to go after her. And I gotta be honest with you, Brad Pitt usually isn't funny in films. He doesn't exactly have to be. But He's really funny in this film. And I think he's funny in the same way that uh, Leslie Nielsen was funny in the Naked Gun films. He plays it straight, but even when ridiculous things are happening around him. And also, there's another good supporting performance by an actress whose name is Divine Joy Randolph, who I hadn't seen in a lot of uh, films before. She plays... The uh, publisher of um, Loretta Sage's books. Her name in the movie is Beth Hatton. and apparently Divine Joy Randolph is an actress and a singer. She's been on Broadway in uh, Ghost the Musical, where she played Odame Brown, which for those of you who remember the movie Ghost, That was the role that Whoopi Goldberg played and won an Academy Award for. And uh, Divine Joy Randolph has a very impressive, not only repertoire, but also a great background. She got her BA from uh, Temple and her Master of Fine Arts in Acting from Yale. So, yeah, she knows her stuff. And she does things in this film that are, I think, typical of a city-dwelling book publisher, but not uh, somebody who's very... Uh, Street smart in the way of, (laughs) shall we say, recruiting somebody to go through the jungle to find two people who are missing and whom she needs for a book tour. But I think Divine Joy Randolph played the role, A, with charm and B, with a lot of humor so that when she shows up to this remote jungle near the Atlantic Ocean in a business suit, It works for her character, and she's very credible, not to mention funny, in the role. But on top of that, seeing Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum together is really a lot of fun. They have amazing chemistry, both when they inevitably fall in love, which you know they're going to do, because whenever Channing Tatum is in a movie with an attractive woman, you know that's going to happen. But also, when they're fighting, I felt like their fighting was genuine particularly because it's Loretta who does all the writing, whereas it's Dash or Alan's job to basically pose for the camera and look pretty. But he has a following doing that. And I think that both of these characters play their roles incredibly well. And I think Channing Tatum has an added touch to that. He's another actor very much like Brad Pitt. He doesn't exactly have to be funny, but I think he's given his career a lot of leverage by being funny. And Channing Tatum is not somebody I anticipated would be funnier than Ryan Reynolds, but he is. And I think that Channing Tatum works very well because he knows how to play it deadpan. And he also knows, unlike Ryan Reynolds, when to let silence be funny because Ryan Reynolds just crams every kind of joke or pop culture reference into a movie that he can, especially when he's playing Deadpool. And it it does work for, for Deadpool as a character, but other times, my God, in other movies he's been in uh, to date, he has just done that way too much. But I think that Channing Tatum has a better sense of Comic timing—a far better sense of comic timing than Ryan Reynolds does. And of course, Sandra Bullock has co-starred with Ryan Reynolds. For example, he, uh, she, and Ryan Reynolds were good together in *The Proposal*. But that's when Ryan Reynolds knew when to tone it down. He doesn't quite know that now, but Channing Tatum actually does. And I really got into the adventure of this movie. I found it hilarious, especially with. Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum in the forefront, they were very funny. I liked Daniel Radcliffe as the antagonist of this film. I liked Brad Pitt as the dead serious uh, bounty hunter, but not too serious because he knew when to use his seriousness to be funny. And Divine Joy Randolph was also very good in this role as well. And there are also some good uh, other supporting performances in this film, like for example... Oscar Nunez uh, from Breaking Bad is in this film as well, actually playing an antagonist, which is a bit bizarre because he comes off as a very likable guy. You also have uh, Bowen Yang from Saturday Night Live having a brief but memorable appearance as one of the moderators of the uh, book tour, or at least uh, the, the stop you see in the movie. You also have um, an actress by the name of Joan Pringle who plays... Um, Beth Hatton or Divine Joy Randolph's character's um, elderly mother, who also has some good scenes. So overall, there's a lot to love about The Lost City, not to mention the story and the on-location filming. I watched this film and I didn't think it was a rip-off of Indiana Jones at all. Uncharted was a bit of a knock-off of Indiana Jones, but I think it also kind of um, had its own sort of personality. But I like this f- film, The Lost... I think... This movie, The Lost City, worked a lot better than the film Red Notice, which was kind of about the same sort of archaeological find that the protagonists in the film are are trying to accomplish. But Red Notice had Ryan Reynolds in it, who really brought down the film as I saw it. But The Lost City, I thought worked where Red Notice probably didn't work, which is why it gets my rating of a knockout. I think that Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum were great together, even when it goes through some of those subplots where you know they hate each other or it seems like they hate each other when the sexual chemistry is building up. But I think that the sexual chemistry built up naturally in this film not to mention the chemistry between the two when they supposedly loved each other and when they supposedly hated each other it was just all believable it might have been a typical formulaic subplot but it worked here surprisingly a lot better than other action comedies that i've seen so the lost city is definitely worth checking out for those reasons Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Apollo 10 and A, a Space Age Childhood. This is a coming-of-age story set in the suburbs of Houston, Texas in the summer of 1969. And even though 1969 was well before my time, it would be more than a decade before I would be born Seeing this movie, I wanted to live in Houston, Texas in 1969. I'll get to that a little bit later, but I will tell you that Apollo 10 and a half is directed by and Richard, written by Richard Linkladder, and it is also a rotoscoped animated film. So, what, what does that mean, rotoscoped? Well, for those of you who are not familiar with animation, rotoscoping is when live actors are filmed and then animators trace their uh, movements and Richard Linklater has actually employed this um, animation for the third time. This is actually, if, if somebody were to give him or anoint this film as well as his two other films, the uh, Richard Linklater's rotoscoping animated trilogy, they could do that. So Richard Linklater first experimented with rotoscoping in an animated film that he did in 2001, which was called Waking Life. And Waking Life was not a box office hit. And if you sat down and watched the film for about 10 minutes, you'd probably know why. It's these animated humans who are talking about very deep and philosophical issues that if you read them out of a book, they might seem dry, but Richard Lenkladder did the equivalent of putting a tongue to sandpaper by animating the film. And the animation in uh, Waking Life is really good. He also employed the same kind of filmmaking in 2006 when he created the movie A Scanner Darkly, which starred Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, Woody Harrelson, and Robert Downey Jr. And that was a film that was set in a dystopian future, which was actually about drug manufacturing and drug use. That was also a a very good film. As a matter of fact, whether it's animated or not, to my knowledge, and I've seen a lot of Richard Linklater's films, but not all of them. But Richard Linklater, in my opinion, from what I've seen from him, has not made a bad film yet. He has, very much like Robert Rodriguez always stuck to his independent filmmaking roots. And every film I've seen from him, and granted I haven't seen every film, has been interesting and intriguing. I have heard that the movie he did in 2019, which was called uh, Where'd You Go Bernadette, which starred Kate Blanchett, wasn't particularly great, but I haven't seen it, so I can't make that judgment. But I will tell you, however, that Apollo 10 and a Half. A space a, a space age childhood is a really intriguing movie, and not just because it's about a kid who flies to the moon on the spacecraft Apollo ten and a half. I'll explain a little bit more about that later. Eighty percent of the film is very much like a Christmas story or The Wonder Years, and because Richard Linklater wrote the film, and by wrote the film I mean he wrote the screenplay and the story with no other input that's credited here to any other writers, it's probably semi-autobiographical. Although, I thought that Richard Linklater was more of an Austin, um, grew up in Austin, Texas, as opposed to Houston, because a lot of his films take place in Austin. But, as it turns out, Richard Linklater was born in 1960, in Houston, Texas. And the movie is about a nine-year-old boy who lives with a rather large family or a medium-sized family from 1960 standards in suburban Houston, Texas. And of course, Houston became a growing city in large part because NASA's headquarters were there, or at least that's where NASA launched Some of their uh, space shuttles, not all of them, some of them were launched out of Houston. Others were launched out of Cape Canaveral, Florida, which they are still to this day. But during the 60s, at the height of the Cold War, when the good part of the Cold War was that Americans were gearing up to make their way to the moon to beat the Russians to the moon. And the Russians ultimately never made it to the moon. The Americans have so far been the only nation that has had astronauts land on the moon. And I would have loved to have grown up during that time, but then again, growing up in the 80s and 90s was also very cool. But this movie takes a very nostalgic look back at the late 1960s, taking into acknowledgement that Nixon was president, the Vietnam War was raging on, but this movie very much like A Christmas Story and like The Wonder Years, takes a nostalgic look back at those times and what it's like to be a kid, not a young adult there. And it's narrated by Jack Black. And Jack Black doesn't make an appearance in the movie. He just narrates it. He's credited here as grown-up Stan because Stan in this movie is a nine or ten-year-old boy who is played by Milo Coy, whom I don't know has been in any other films. But how does Houston uh, how does NASA factor into this? It's not just the parents and the kids um leading up to seeing Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon for the first time. The subplot of the film, which I think is very far fetched, is where the NASA scientists made a spacecraft that was too small for its Apollo astronauts, so it recruits this young boy Stan to be the actual first person to walk on the moon on Apollo 10 and a half. Now if it was Apollo 11 and a half, I might believe that, but to have but according to this film, I think it's I think it's sort of played as a fantasy, one that you're not the people who watch the film, regardless of their age, are not necessarily expected to believe, but the movie Sort of leads up to Stan being the actual first person to walk on the moon, but it's kept under wraps because of, um, I don't know, government issues. Who knows what some people in the government keep under wraps for what reasons? There are some reasons why some secrets are understandably kept, um, sealed for a certain amount of time. But again, I kind of interpreted this as more of a fantasy, 20% fantasy, 80% nostalgia. But I do have to say that it does sort of take that baby boomer elitist kind of perspective where it says, it shows that, you know we we could go out go on our bikes and as long as we were home by dinner time we were okay and if we got injured we just kind of put some dirt on it and so on and so forth. Older generations do this kind of talk all the time. But coming from writer Richard Linklater, it's actually not obnoxious to hear this kind of look back nostalgically. So Apollo 10 did have some amazing animation, and I did like not only the way that the humans in the movie, the people in the movie were rotoscoped, but I also actually liked how some of the archive footage, uh, like, for example, um, President John F. Kennedy making the declaration that Americans are going to be the first to land on the moon. In the next decade, I liked how that was rotoscoped. I liked how he would, um, the kid Stan vicariously through Jack Black was talking about the cool things that were on TV, as well as the cool things he could do at Houston. How if you had a bicycle and maybe a couple of quarters in your pocket, you could basically do whatever you wanted. And I loved how he described suburban Houston as not just a place to live, but almost like a big space related playground. And I love that about Apollo 10 and a half. And it's amazing to me how this film came out before the Academy Awards. But I really, really hope, I really hope, and yes, the uh, Oscar season is young, but I hope that the Academy takes notice of Apollo 10 and a half. And nominates it, maybe not for Best Picture, but Best Animated Feature. And there are going to be several animated features that are going to come out later this year. That's the way movie movies work. But I liked this one. Not only was it nostalgic, but it also created a, a, a genuine world um, from uh, suburban Houston. Which you wouldn't have necessarily expected. And I was envious of these kids for having grown up in such a cool city, especially one where space and its final frontier was not only a goal, but it was an entire industry. And it also permeated well into the suburban life of these kids. I love that. So Apollo 10 and a half A Space Age Childhood is totally worth checking out. It is on Netflix right now, and before I get into how you can watch it, it's a knockout. I think it continues Richard Linklater's hot streak of making great movie after great movie, although with a credible sense of independent filmmaking, even when Richard Linklater makes big budget films. But I loved how this film came not only from nostalgia, but also from the heart. Now, as I mentioned, it is a Netflix original film. It premiered on the platform on April 1st, uh, 2022. And you could check it out indefinitely on Netflix. In fact, this may be a movie that I see again. It's certainly a film to watch with the whole family. It is rated PG-13, I think, for some language and also some violence in the film. But overall, I, I think that this is a film that kids should watch, I think that they would get a a lot of enjoyment out of it. And especially adults, particularly baby boomers will love this film for an entirely different reason as well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is You Won't Be Alone. This is an internationally co-produced horror film written and directed by Goran Stalevsky. And he is an Australian, North Macedonian film director and screenwriter. And he is making his feature directorial debut with this film. And before he directed You Won't Be Alone, he has actually done uh, filmography for such uh, shows as Barracuda and um, Nowhere Boys, none of which I've actually seen. As far as being a director, he's directed some episodes of Nowhere Boys, as well as uh, some shorts like Ambassador, Picture of a Good Woman, Blood, and Frankie's Big Head, but this is his feature directorial debut, and it's not the strongest directorial debut that I've seen, but it shows some promise, so You Won't Be Alone is a film that, as I said, is a horror film, it's more like a psychological horror film, and it takes place in an isolated mountain village in 19th century Macedonia, which at the time was a third world country, I think now it's it's been developed, or at least probably closer to the second world than it is the third world. But in this movie, a young girl is kidnapped by a witch and then transformed fully by an ancient spirit. So it has a really good premise. And the setting of 19th century Macedonia is good. And of course, it's... um, It's a film that, at least when I saw it, was uh, subtitled. In other words, it's in the Macedonian language. And the only uh, actor in the film who Western audiences may know is uh, Nomi Rapace, who plays the uh, titular character Basilka. And the movie starts out, I think, really well, but then the last uh, two-thirds of the film kind of gets bogged in a very slow and sluggish story. Basically, you have these inhabitants who are living in this third world Macedonia, living without very many luxuries, and there is a witch that appears um, in the home of a young mother And the makeup on this witch is really good. You know that she has been burnt at one point, and the third-degree scars on her entire body are really well-done makeup. And initially, when she places a curse on the child so that the young mother actually has to put her child in a cave so that witches won't get to her... The movie develops a really good uh, philosophical starting point, but from then, the the movie, particularly when the girl grows up and leaves the cave, that's when it gets really bogged down by a a sluggish plot and also way too many shots of the close-up of the face, and I think that Sometimes close-up shots of the face are good, but this movie, particularly towards the last two-thirds, employed way too many of them, so much to the point that by the time the movie ended, I felt really bored. And also, the movie is not the longest movie I've ever seen. It's one hour, 48 minutes, but it takes place over the course of maybe about 15 years, and sometimes it feels like 15 years having watched the film sometimes, so... I did like its originality as a plot, but I really thought that the, the rest of the story just didn't really gel by the end. And, and also, there are certain things that witches can do that are fortunately shown and not spoken, but I was really confused by them. For instance, the witches in the film are carnivorous and they're cannibalistic. Uh, That kind of carnivorousness. And that makes them scary, certainly, but I wasn't quite sure when these witches ate other people whether or not they consumed their identity or not. I wasn't quite sure of the the rules there. And the close-up shots of some of these characters made these rules, what witches could do, what witches couldn't do, all the more confusing. Plus, if these witches were burned, how did they come back to life again? That also wasn't particularly well explained. And if the witches could come back to life, what's the point of burning them at the stake? I just didn't quite understand that as well. So, the movie You Won't Be Alone has a really good premise. I think that it had an original story that unfortunately got bogged down with a plot that just spun its wheels, way too many close-up shots of people's faces, so much so that you couldn't really get back into the story. And this movie had some promise, too, because the the poster of the movie looks very eerie. As a matter of fact, it reminded me of the Criterion Collection cover for the movie um, Sado or... A uh, Salo, or the last 120 days of Sodom, a film that I have not seen, but I hear really, really bad things, um, in terms of what's in the film. In other words, I know it's scary, I know it's creepy, but I just can't bring myself to watch the film, especially not on my own. You won't be alone. Is not quite as creepy as Salo is reputed to be, despite what the poster promises, but. I just didn't really get into it, and while I did think the acting was good, and I thought the premise was original, I thought the story could have been better, which is why I give You Won't Be Alone my rating of a strikeout. You could definitely see the actors in the film working as hard as they could, and they are good. Just about everyone in this film is really convincing, especially Nomi Rapace, and Nomi Rapace is a fantastic actress, but... The cinematography of the movie could have really used some work. Sometimes we don't need those close-ups of the face, especially when the characters are doing something that we as audience members might want to know what they're doing. Even if they're even if they're barricaded by something and it's a wide shot and you can guess what they're doing, that's a lot better than extreme close-ups that this movie employed I thought way too liberally so You Won't Be Alone is original it's creepy in a lot of instances but it's a miss for me because of cinematography that could have used some work as well as a story that could have been fleshed out better and I really needed to care more about all the characters I've seen in the film and by the end I really didn't Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is called What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and or streaming for the week of April 11th through April 15th, 2022. And I'm going to start off and probably dedicate my whole segment to this because I only have a few minutes left in the show with movies that are subject to be released in theaters. The biggest movie to be released in theaters is the third of the Fantastic Beasts movie. This one is called Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore. This is um, sort of independent of the Harry Potter books that were written by J.K. Rowling. And J.K. Rowling has been somewhat uh, canceled these days, I think, unfairly. In cancel culture, I I agree with sometimes and I don't agree with other times, but J.K. Rowling has, has tweeted some things that I wouldn't condone, but at the same time, I wouldn't banish her from the public lexicon for the rest of her life for. But anyway, J.K. Rowling did co-wrote the screen... Co write the screenplay along with Steve Cloves for this movie. It is the third installment of the film series Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is both a spin off and a prequel to the Harry Potter series. And it follows the continuing adventures of Newt Scamander. Newt Scamander would later go on to write the textbook. Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them, which played a very significant role in the Harry Potter series. And Newt Scamander is played, again here, by Eddie Redmayne. Also um, joining the cast, uh, reprising their roles, include Dan Fogler, who plays the American Jacob, Jacob Kowalski, and also making his debut as Albus Dumbledore, or actually, scratch that, He was uh, Albus Dumbledore in the previous Fantastic Beasts movie, which was The Crimes of Grindelwald. Here he's reprising that role. Um, Albus Dumbledore in this movie is played by Jude Law, which um, is a very good uh, casting choice. And there's also a couple of other uh, well-known actors in the film, including Ezra Miller, um, Mads Mikkelsen, Katherine Waterston, uh, and other such actors and I am very excited to see this film I didn't well I wasn't exactly crazy about the movie The Crimes of Grindelwald just because I thought Johnny Depp kind of hammed it up a little too much and he also broke a rule that J.K. Rowling had with the Harry Potter series in that he was an American who played a British person and he and she wanted just British people to be in the movie, which I don't think is a bad thing, honestly. But Johnny Depp kind of broke that rule, and unfortunately he underperformed. But I did enjoy the first Fantastic Beasts movie. I think Johnny Depp might make a cameo in The Secret of Dumbledore, but regardless, Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore is a movie that I will see, and I will review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters this coming weekend is a movie that's called Father Stew. This is a movie that follows the life of Father Stuart Long, who is a boxer turned priest, interesting career choice, who inspired countless people during his journey from self-destruction to redemption. Sounds like a faith-based movie. I don't know if it's based on a true story or not, but the movie stars Mark Wahlberg As, uh, Father Stu, Mel Gibson also, uh, stars in this film. And the site that it shows me, um, has Mel Gibson as top billing. You don't want Mel Gibson to play a priest, rest assured, given his, uh, track record. And Mel Gibson has come a long way from the mistake he made that knocked him off the A-list, but you don't want him to play a priest ever. (laughs) But Mark Wahlberg here plays the titular Father Stu, and I don't know why this site gives Mel Gibson top billing because people are going to see a Mark Wahlberg film. They're still reluctant to see Mel Gibson in a leading role. But the movie also also co-stars Jackie Weaver and Winter Ave Zoli. I'm very interested in seeing this film. I don't know if I will, but I will make my best. Um, I'll make my best effort to see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. This is not. Um, Mark Wahlberg's first time playing a boxer, uh, but it is his first time playing a priest. So I'm very interested to see how this movie goes um, because the other characters that Mark Wahlberg has played have been far from priest-like. There's another film that looks like a comedy-drama romance, and it's called Paris 13th District. I've never been to Paris. I don't know anything about the districts there, but I'm interested in seeing this film. It's a movie about a young girl whose name is, em- or a young woman whose name is Emily, who meets Camille, who is attracted to Nora, who crosses paths with Amber. And no, that is not what I'm making up. That's the um, premise uh, that I'm reading for you right now. It's three girls and a boy. They're friends, sometimes lovers, and often both. This is not a love triangle. This is more like a love square or a love rectangle. But it sounds very intriguing. Sounds kind of like a movie that's Oscar bait. And the movie stars no actors that I know. It stars Lucy Zhang, Makita Samba, Noemi Marriott, and uh, Jenny Beth. And judging from the poster, it might be a period movie. It might not take place present day. It actually looks like it could take place in the 60s, for instance. But I don't know for sure. But it's a movie that I will try to seek out, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called 13 Lives. This is a movie that is directed by Ron Howard and is sort of uh, underplayed here. It might be coming out on streaming services as well. And Ron Howard has had a bit of a rut when it's come to directing films. But this movie is about a rescue mission that is assembled in Thailand when a group of young boys and their soccer coach are trapped in a system of underground caves that are flooding. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but that sounds amazing. The movie stars Tom Bateman, Colin Farrell, Vigo Mortensen, and Joel Edgerton, amongst other people. So it's got a really good cast, and it's directed by Ron Howard, who has done some good as a director, just not recently. But I'm waiting for Ron Howard to make a comeback, particularly as a director. So we'll see if he does. I don't know if this movie is coming out in a the theater near me. If it isn't, it might is, there's a high probability that it's coming out on streaming. But I will try to check it out, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies This is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.